0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Yeah, so I mean, from what I, from what I understand, the laws against people making art in the streets or marking the streets or writing in the streets um is relatively new. Uh, when we go back to um Pompeii and obviously all of the ruins being beautifully um preserved, which is amazing, uh the walls were walls are covered with graffiti. Um and so I think that we're we're in a society that wants everyone to uh behave a certain way and do a certain thing and and fit in and and part of that is to not not express yourselves on any surfaces and we take the rules that are part of society and we assimilate them and we take them as as that's the way that things are but if we had we all grown up in a world where that was encouraged or um or not illegal i don't think we would feel strangely i think then, if someone said to you, well, what if graffiti was illegal? Then you'd be like, oh, that would be weird, wouldn't it? Because that would be the norm that you grew up in. I'm Srini Rao,
2: and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
5: But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite.
4: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns.
0: We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat,
1: cure, or prevent any disease.
2: David, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thanks for having me on. I'm pumped to be a guest.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I, I found out about your story because you're one of our listeners who wrote in and I know that you're a graffiti artist. You've built a business around being a graffiti artist. Uh, and when I saw what you had done, I was immediately intrigued because I've always been very intrigued by graffiti, particularly because I can't draw, but some of the more you know informative guests and people have an impact on me like Eric Wall um, you know, was also a graffiti artist. So I thought this is kind of a no brainer. I want to have this conversation. But before we do that, Uh, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and career?
1: Sure. So, um, I, am actually really excited to, um, talk to you about my parents because, um, and I knew, I knew you would ask this because it's uh, like kind of a a common theme that you Mm -hmm. ask a lot of people. Um, so I was super excited to talk about my mom and dad because, um, no one ever asks me that and no one really ever is ever worried about sort of who your parents were. And, and I think our parents are so formational for us that, um, I think they're a big part of every single person's life. So, um, so I was adopted, um, at about two years old. Um, and so I have no real memories of my birth family in inverted commas. Um, but I believe that the people that love you and look after you are your family. So I've never had. Uh, when I was growing up, people would find out that I was adopted and say, "Oh, don't you ever want to go and find your real family?" And for me, my real family were my mum, my dad, the people that were were looking after me. Um, so for careers, um, they both worked extremely hard, um, and we didn't always have much money, but um, there was always food on the table. Um, I had absolutely no complaints. Um, and so my mom and dad thought that they couldn't have children. And so I, so they adopted me because they wanted to have a kid. Um, and then my sister came along, um, and she was naturally born, um, through them. She was a surprise as happens sometimes. Um, and she was born, um, she's was unable to walk or talk. Um, she had something called Rett syndrome, which is, a strange um, disorder that only affects girls. If boys are born with it, they're still born. Um, And having, um, having a sister essentially in a, in a wheelchair who was, who was never able to um, communicate through words um, was kind of quite, uh, well, obviously had a huge impact on my life. Um, And she was, she passed away. um, So she, uh she passed away when she was uh twenty four i think um and so she was such a beautiful light of 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 life and energy and she was um she was so smiley and she loved disney movies and um although we've never had a conversation i I loved her so dearly um and so growing up with her my mum i think my mum maybe feels guilt about it um because she said to me in the past. Um, that I was a essentially a, an only child because all of their attention was taken up with my sister because my sister would be in and out of hospital and and it was kind of quite hard for them. Um, I never I never saw it that way and I never held any sort of um, bad fe- bad feeling towards my mum and dad for um, for how they raised me. So they um, they were always super kind of behind anything that I did that was creative. Um, they were super behind like any, anything that I did that was, um, academic, I guess they they were just really supportive of, of me. Um, I guess like the, the Carol Dweck thing, um, of mindset, they, although they hadn't read that book, I think just instinctively, they, they praised me for working hard at something rather than, um, rather than the results. It was, it was the work that was praised. Um, and so I, I liked to please them. So, uh, I would draw pictures for them constantly and, um, and I loved coloring books and, and yeah, and, um, my dad was a plumber. Um, he's retired now and he, um, just had like a ridiculous work ethic. Um, even at sort of 10, 11, 12, I knew that he wasn't charging enough for his work um because I knew that he was the best at what he did, he was a craftsman um i mean it's it's plumbing it's pipes it's water um it's it's fixing the toilets like things like that but um he was without doubt the best at what he did, and I knew that because of i would i would go to work with him sometimes and and I would see how much care and attention that he put into things, and just when so many people start to say that you're the best at something it's, it's clear that that person clearly is the best at something. Um, and I think he always had, um, something and we've spoken about it in recent years. He always had something sort of holding him back, um, when it came to charging enough. Um, I definitely learned a lot of work ethic, um, from him. And then I learned, um, empathy and love, um, from, well, from both of them, but specifically from my mum um, and, her and my dad both um became foster carers after my after my sister passed away. Um and there's always been um there were always kind of children in our house. Um my mum and dad have always just had this kind of big, big heart and just have always like looked after kids. Um it's just been a, a thing for them. So for me, my my path, I was always gonna be a primary school teacher. Um, that was kind of, because I was always around kids, cause there was always some in our house and I was like looking after them a lot of the time. Um, that was the path that I was set on. Um, but then I found graffiti and things went a very different way.
2: Mm. Okay, So we'll, we'll talk about how you found graffiti in a moment, but, uh, how old were you when you realized that you were adopted or when so. T-
1: so my mom and dad, um, they told me from as, from as early as I can remember. So it was never a sit down and a big kind of bombshell moment. Um, it was just, you were grown in another lady's tummy and then, oh. uh, and then we, then we, then you came here and we looked after you. Um, and they, they always said, oh, if you want help, like, um, as soon as you're 18, you'll legally be able to go and find your birth mum. And if you want help doing that, then we'll set everything up and we'll, we'll help you. And so they always gave me that option. Um, for me, it never, it never came up. It's never something that I've really thought about. Um, I've, I had my mum and dad, I didn't want another set of parents. Um, and I also didn't want to turn up in someone's life after 18 years and potentially, um, turn their world on its head by saying, hi, I'm the son that you forgot about. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, you know, the reason I asked how old you were is because I I can't help but wonder how your understanding of what that means, what it means that you're adopted, changes with age. Because I think as a five-year-old, you say, okay, well, I was growing in another woman's stomach, and that's the extent of which you can make sense of it emotionally. Um, so I, I wonder, at least maybe that's what I th- perceive it to be, um, how did your understanding of what that meant change with age?
1: It's it's very hard to say because it it everything happened i feel like i've always felt the same and perhaps that's inaccurate but um my and my mum's always said um kind of in later life talking to her about it she's always said that you you never asked um and you were never particularly inquisitive about um your birth family we would sort of we would have to bring it up with you um every now and then and you would say oh no uh yeah well maybe one day and then i'd just kind of dismiss it um so i feel like it's never been something that i've i've Cause I know some people that have been adopted feel like a big hole in their Mm. life. Um, and I never felt that I never had a longing to, to go and discover this other part of my history. I guess it's, it was just never a driver for me.
2: Yeah. So in the midst of this, you have a sister and so your parents, you know, get to give birth to a child after they're thinking that they're not going to be able to give birth, but then she has, you know, numerous health issues and, and she turns out this way. I wonder, um, what, what was the impact of that on your parents and the impact of that on their relationship with you?
1: Um, I think the impact must have been huge. Um because she was she was a constant um she needed attention constantly. Um they had to do everything for her, um, from from dress her in the morning to feed her um for for the whole of her life. Um I mean she did she went to school um and she had, she had, they had a lot of help, um, in terms of care and aid that's, that sort of provided. But, um, but I mean, most of the time they were doing most of the stuff themselves. Um, and that's, uh, that's a huge burden. Um, and I think not knowing if your child is, is going to, or not knowing how long your child is going to live, um, I think is a, is, is a huge weight to bear. Um, but they never, I mean, it was never, I didn't grow up in a sad house. Um, I grew up in a very, a very happy house and, um, there would be problems with Joanna, but we would, we would get through them. And that, that was it. We all sort of, um, we all sort of came together and, and my mum just sort of carries everyone through, um, which she continues to do with, uh, if my dad, my dad's, if my dad's just got over cancer and my mum, got everyone through that. And my, my grandmother's 96 and, uh, and she has various ailments and stuff. And my mum gets her through all of that. So, um, she, she carries the, the family and, and I do often sort of think like, who, who carries you? Um, and I mean, I know my dad supports her a lot, but it's, it's, um, yeah, it's difficult to be the one to sort of shoulder all of that. And certainly with my sister, she definitely did.
2: Yeah. So I think that what struck me most is that you said, you, you know, you grew up in a family that was happy and I, I wonder, you know, why you have this, we have this sort of relativity of grief, right? Where people who have nowhere as near as difficult a life uh, find themselves complaining more or treating their problems like they're the end of the world when, you know, somebody like your own mother uh, can deal with such a difficult situation and yet do it in the way that you're describing. Like, what do you think it is that's the differentiator between those two
1: types of people? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think, I mean, I was reading a a study about, um, cancer survivors or, well, people with cancer that, um, and they, they were analyzing how, how they were dealing with the illness and the people that were depressed about having the cancer had a much lower survival rate. Whereas the people who were hugely optimistic and were like, I'm going to beat this and we're getting through cancer together, have a much higher survival rate. Um, I mean, don't, I don't know the science and, and everything. So don't quote me on that, but that's what I was reading. Um, and I can, I can believe that would be true. Um, I think that, um, you can, you can live in a in a negative space and then everything you see around you, you can interpret it as, as negative. Um, or on the other hand, you can view to, uh, you can view everything as, as a, as a gift and view it that way. So, um, and I guess that's, that's how I was raised. I think, I mean, I've never met (laughs) my mom and dad, like I've never met, I, I don't, I don't believe in luck, but I mean, so much bad stuff has happened to my mom and dad over the years. Um, but they've never, they're always optimistic and, and cheery and they kind of get through it and that's just the way it's always been. So, um, hugely lucky to have, have grown up in that sort of environment, knowing that, um, this is a problem now, but we'll get through it and then it won't be a problem anymore. And then it will, you'll just move on, um, and keep going. So I, I don't know what, I don't know what the differentiator is. Um, I mean, I, I suffered from um, chronic fatigue syndrome for about five years. Um, and I found it hugely hard to, um, to get out of bed to, to even to open the curtains because, um, I was really light sensitive and um that was at, at 16 years old so i missed all of the kind of space of of like going out and getting drunk with your friends which is what what all my friends were doing um and i really m- like missed a huge chunk like 5 years of of that really um pivotal pivotal determining stage of of you finding out who you are and mm-hmm. your identity and everything um and at the end of that I feel like, I mean, I gradually got myself out of it through routine and, and just like perseverance and determination, but I, I could view that. I could view my sister's death. I could, there's a lots of things that have happened in my life that I could let bring me down and I could, I could dwell on them. Um, or I mean, I've, I've, Looking over on the mantelpiece there's a, a photo of my sister's beautiful beaming face um she had, like, she just had the most magical smile i 'm looking at a picture of her right now um and I cherished though I cherished that short time that I had with her and rather than um, lamenting her death um and i mean when when she when she did die, she was in a lot of pain um, and she was at a pivotal stage where um she was going to have to move from the school where she was at, the school that she was at actually allowed her to stay an extra year um, because they loved her so much. And it was just kind of unheard of. They literally just let the students stay for an extra year. Um, because they wanted to hold on to her for as long as they could. And she was, when she died, she was just about to move into sort of more, uh, more adult care, where I don't think she would have been looked after in the same way, and I don't think she would have been as happy. Um, so rather than Than dwell on her death. Obviously I'd much rather, but like I'd give anything to go and hold her hand now. Um, but I'm, I'm more happy and grateful for the time that we did spend together rather than focusing on, um, not seeing her again. Yeah.
2: Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a bit and actually get into your work. Uh, you mentioned that you were on the path to becoming a primary school teacher and then you know, graffiti artist. like those are wildly divergent paths. So what the hell happened?
1: Yeah, it was a, I I was leading a bit of a love double life at, at one time. So, um, I was, I was training to be a primary school teacher. I was working in a school, um, with, uh, year four, they're called, um, here in the UK. So, uh, I guess seven and eight year olds, um, who were wonderful. I loved them to bits. Um, but I was telling them to behave during the day. And then I was going out at night and running down railway lines and, um, not really behaving myself. Um, and I love teaching and I just started to get quite frustrated with, I was looking at all the teachers that were around me when I was working in the school and realizing that the time that they spent with the kids actually impacting their lives was was quite short in comparison to the amount of time that they were spending doing paperwork, and I, I, I know that that would not have been my strength had I become a teacher. Um, paperwork is not my thing in my business. Now, uh, my my colleagues keep me well away from anything to do with paperwork because they know it will be a disaster. So, yeah, it was um, it was kind of frustrating because I knew I wanted to help. I knew I wanted to help these kids, but, um, I knew that that was also going to be difficult. Um, and I think, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but I think moving into the space that I've moved into now, I'm able to do what I wanted to do there, which is help people. I'm able to do that now on a much bigger scale and with no paperwork, which is brilliant.
2: Mm -hmm. So how then does the whole graffiti artist career even begin? you know, you're a teacher, like what sparked this?
1: So I, I fell into graffiti when I was about 18, um, which is, which is quite late for, um, because most people start kind of, I don't know, as young as 12, I've seen young writers kind of out there, um, making work, but, but typically during the, you're kind of 15, 16 year old, that's the time where most people, but when I started, it was um, the year 2000 and graffiti was kind of like a closed, a closed kind of club like uh, almost like the mafia like you couldn't get in unless you were invited in or you knew someone and um, because now now it's totally different you've got the internet you can literally you can connect with other artists really easily um you can buy your paint online it's a super it's a super easy you can start it as a hobby and that's an easy thing to do whereas in the early 2000s you had to you had to know someone um so i just i was on a on a college trip when i was like 17 just about to turn 18 and I got, I got put in a room. Uh, there weren't enough rooms to go around, and so I got I got put in a room with uh, another kid. And I complained to my my tutor, and I was like, "Oh, don't put me in the room with him. He looks like an idiot." And he said, "No, no, you're like Paul. He does graffiti." And like so, I, instantly I was sold. I was like, "Paul does graffiti, right?" So Paul's about to become my best mate. Then, so um, I met Paul. We we hit it off straight away. We were into the same music. We like we just we were like mirror images of each other. Um, but he just happened to be a graffiti artist. So we actually uh, met in Amsterdam on a school trip, um, got put in the same room together, and um, he knew all the spots in Amsterdam. So while everyone else was doing the Anne Frank Museum and 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 smoking lots of cannabis, um, me and Paul went on this just discovery mission of finding all of the places in Amsterdam that, that had been painted that were, it's called Halls of Fame. So places where... People go and and display their artworks on the walls, and I was just like, it was just incredible for me. Like we were, we started skiving off all of the lessons that we were supposed to go to, and we were just every day, we were just going back to these places and and looking at all of the artwork. And and I mean, it wasn't there were no digital cameras. Um, well, we couldn't afford them in the year two thousand anyway. So, um, so we were just taking rolls and rolls of film, um, clicking away all of these all of these amazing pieces of graph that we were seeing all over the place. And, um, and I was I was hooked we he he knew the spot in Amsterdam where you could buy where you could buy spray paint. I mean now in every city there'll be a shop where you can go and buy spray paint. A lot of art shops stock it as well. Um, but then it, there was one market stall um, in in Flavo Park in Amsterdam. so we, we went there we bought our spray paint and just started painting on the walls and I, I was hooked from then on so um, I had I had chronic fatigue syndrome um i was in bed for i would sleep in like 18 hour blocks and i'd wake up for maybe 3 or 4 hours and then i'd go back to sleep again um and it was a it was a difficult time and the only thing that um that kind of got me through it was the the desire to go painting um that was the only thing that i would i would actually be able to drag myself out of bed and and go and paint um and then and then teacher training didn't come along till I was uh, sort of 23, 24. Um, so by that point, that was when I'd, I'd kind of come out of, of CFS. But um, during that time, the only thing that kept me going, I, I had a little like part-time job um, to pay the bills and and graffiti. And that was it. And I was hooked.
2: So I think the one of the things that's particularly interesting to me about graffiti as an art form, uh, you know, you actually kind of alluded to it—the fact that you know it's seen as this thing where one, you're not welcome to the club. But I think the other thing, and I don't know if this is the case in the United States or in, in the UK, but I think typically when you think of graffiti, you think of vandalism like the two kind of are synonymous with each other. And and what's amazing is that you see some vandalism, but it's just like breathtakingly amazing artwork. Uh, So I I wonder, you know, as somebody who does this for a living, like what are your thoughts on that perception? You know, what do we do to unwind that? What misperceptions do we as people who are, are not graffiti artists have about all of this?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, from what I, from what I understand, the laws against, people making art in the streets or marking the streets or writing in the streets, um, is relatively new. Uh, when we go back to, um, Pompeii and obviously all of the ruins being beautifully, um, preserved, which is amazing. Uh, the walls were walls are covered with graffiti. Um, and so I think that we're, we're in a society that wants everyone to uh, behave a certain way and do a certain thing and, and fit in and and part of that is to not not express yourselves on any surfaces and we take the rules that are part of society and we assimilate them and we take them as as that's the way that things are but if we had we all grown up in a world where that was encouraged or um or not illegal i don't think we would feel strangely i think then if someone said to you, well, what if graffiti was illegal, then you'd be like, oh, that would be weird, wouldn't it? Because that would be the norm that you grew up in. Um, so we just happen to, to develop these rules and laws. And I mean, I do understand it to a degree um, that you couldn't just have mayhem of anyone being able to walk up to any surface and deem it art and do right. what they want. Um, but I do love, so I think... Okay, Obviously the the work that we do um is is very I mean, a lot of my paintings are photorealistic. Um, and they're the sort of things that people will take a lot of photos of and will they can't understand that it's been created with spray paint and they go up and touch it because they think it's coming off the wall and things like that. Um and I I understand people's kind of gravity towards that. But what a lot of people say to me is. Oh, I really, I love graffiti, but I don't, I really, I just like the good stuff. I don't like the tags and all of that rubbish. Mm. Um, and to me, when I, when I'm kind of traveling on, on around London, on the railways or on the buses or anything like that, and I look out the window and see a tag that to me is someone that's on a journey. Um, and it's a, it's a strange subculture. Um, and I mean, it's something that, I, I left i left that subculture behind um, when i decided to do graffiti professionally um, and and make it my job I also made the decision of well I can't also do it illegally because right that would that yeah that would really jeopardize um what I'm doing yeah so I so i have this kind of weird um, relationship with it i i still I still love the illegal stuff um because I sort of i, I remember that energy and I just and i I see it out there and I know that the lengths that the guys that did it went to, to do it. And I kind of, and I still respect that, um, in a strange kind of way as well. And I, and I guess in a way I miss it. Yeah.
5: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
0: We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: Well, it's funny. That's why my my joke about the Trump wall is instead of building a wall, we should just spray paint a mural together. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we'd build a uh, we'd build a bridge between two cultures. The way I see it. Um, yeah. So that's interesting because you know it's funny because I, I had, I'd been looking at, at this idea of graffiti and I found a place here in San Diego where they actually will allow you to come and, and practice graffiti and I was like well, that sounds like an awesome first date idea
1: <laughs> so uh, yeah well this is the thing so I I mean I started actually in legal areas um, so like the places we we found in Amsterdam these were sanctioned areas where I was allowed to paint um, but then gradually in the early two thousands these were these areas were being shut down so. I was kind of presented with a choice at that point of either quit or, and and I mean, I was in love with this art form. So either quit doing this, this new thing that you, that you love um, or, or go illegal. Those, those are your two options. And I really, really didn't want to quit. It's um, I knew that I was becoming a better artist. I knew that time and practice, I was getting better. I didn't view myself as a vandal. Um, I was just creating art where, I wasn't allowed to be. Um, and for me, I didn't really understand why I wasn't allowed to do it there. Um, so it's like, I was never, I was never painting like places of worship. I was never plain, painting other people's property. Right. I w- wasn't like coming up to your car and drawing all over it or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I was just going to these areas that were gray, dull, boring, like by the side of the railway tracks where people are like, I used to be on the train and, and, see people do a double take at my work out of the window. And I loved that. I mean, I remember I remember standing in a in a station in London um, and I'd painted a train and I remember that that train roll rolling in and a guy dropping his coffee cup. And it sounds like a moment from a movie. And in my head it kind of is and I've probably romanticized it like much more than than it was. But I just remember that moment and just thinking Wow! Like, and some people hated it because it because they knew it wasn't supposed to be there, and so they, they the, the the rule follower in them rejected it. And you could see people going, "Oh, well, I don't like that." And then you could see other people, like kids, who just didn't understand But I'd, I'd painted all these cool characters down the side of the train, and they're going, "Oh, cool!" because they they don't know that it's not supposed to be there. Yeah. Um, and you get you get every sort of reaction in between, and for me, that was magic. I loved that, and I think when you when you look societally, like why and I mean it seems to be typically young men um what is it that what why is this this reason that I mean we literally risk our we'll risk our lives to go and and write a word or paint a painting or draw a picture in these really dangerous places um I feel like there must be something deeper societally that's going on that's that's pushing us forward to to do that, whether it's a displacement of. Um, feeling that you don't belong, or or trying to find your voice, or, um, or or almost like, I guess like kind of reclaiming power of of we live we live in this country and it, everything's dictated to us by this government that's passing down all of these laws and and I'm 16 and I who am I and and just going out there and just sort of finding yourself if yeah. that makes sense
2: yeah it does I I think that. What's particularly interesting to me is, you know, you do this as a professional and I wonder, uh, too, you know, are there ways that we, uh, you know, as a society can say, okay, let's have more public spaces where people can go and make art and and graffiti becomes a public art installation where it's not seen as, as you know, vandalism or or something illegal. We say, hey, these are designated spaces where anybody can do this. Um, So I wonder, you know, what does that take? Is that basically, you know, lawmakers and policy and, and, you know, uh, communities working together to make that happen? And then the other thing, you know, sort of related to that, you know, you mentioned a a 16 year old kid. So, you know, let's say that you have a kid who has shown, you know, a clear artistic interest. Uh, I don't know many parents, at least, you know, not mine, or even potentially even some listening to this, who, if they found out their son had this sudden expressive talent, would be like, you know what, go start with graffiti. Uh, How do you, and yet at the same time, you know, from the hundreds of conversations I've had with artists and performers, I know that anybody starting at that age, like has the potential for mastery at a craft. So how do you reconcile those two things?
1: It's very, very, very difficult. So I think that as, as parents and teachers, we are, have the interests of our of our students or our kids at heart um and i think that's why so many so many parents are tell their kids to get to get a job because that's the way it was for their generation and that's what they think is safe and they are worried that if they've got a, a son or a daughter that's that's really into music for them, they don't understand that you could literally be on YouTube in your bedroom and then that can be your career. Um, so they worry and they say, and they dismiss creative things and they say, don't do that. Um, and and it, it kind of gets squashed in a lot of people. Um, I mean, my, like my family knew that I was painting illegally. Um, my mum said, if you end up in a police station, do not expect me to bail you out. Um, she was like, that's your mess and you can deal with it. Um, it never actually happened. So I, I've been chased a couple of times, but I was never actually caught. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we never had to see, see whether she was, uh, going to stay true to her word on that one and whether she wouldn't have bailed <laughs> me out or not. Um, so I never got to, uh, call her bluff on that, but, um, so, and, and obviously she wanted me to, um, to be safe. Um, and I, and I felt like I was Invincible. Um you always think it won't happen to you. And I know like I know of people that were that have been killed um on the train tracks. And I mean I go into schools and I I do I do a lot of talks in schools um and universities and I I would be a hypocrite if I said to the kids, do not do illegal graffiti, because they'll say, Well, for 10 years you did. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be ridiculous. But I think um I would say, no, Know the risks. So for me, when I started, had I been arrested, it would have been my first offense. Um, so most likely it would have been a slap on the wrist and, uh, possibly community service, something like that. Um, then as the world started to change, um, sort of, well, after 9-11, um, if you were caught painting a train, um, and I'm, I think these laws came in 2003 or four. Um, but if you were ca- caught painting a train in the UK, it's now classed as terrorism. So, um, and it can be an in- instant jail serve, uh, instant jail um, sentence. So I think that when I got into it, the risks were significantly less, obviously the the risk of injury and, and fatality were, were there. Um, but so I, I would say, I mean, I would never encourage anyone to do illegal graffiti. But at the same time, I can't tell them not to because it's what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think, be aware of of what could happen. Um, you always think it won't happen to you, but I know people who've been sentenced to like three and four years in prison for making art. Um, it, and I mean, I know, I know of one judge in particular. Who um, gave a graffiti artist the same sentence that he'd given um, uh, someone who was convicted of rape um, earlier, earlier that week, the same sentence. So I think that's um disgusting. Um I don't think the punishment fits the crime for a graffiti artist to, to be serving the same sentence. But um that's just the way it is, and that's something as a as a young artist, if if you've decided to take up graffiti, that's something that you have to consider. Um there is the new cousin of graffiti street art, which is um a lot safer option um you can you can go around finding um wall owners who are happy to give you spaces where you're not going to get prosecuted um I think that certainly the areas that are are legal where you're illegally allowed to paint that's definitely changing because and again it comes down to money because a lot of local authorities realize that it brings tourism into the area. So where, where our studio is based in East London, um, specifically the, Sh- the Shoreditch area, there's paintings everywhere. And I mean, you'd be hard pressed to go out on a day and not find a graffiti artist painting a wall down Brick Lane or um, near Shoreditch at some point um, during the day, because like, they're, they're always there. Um, it's where we make a lot of our work as well. Yeah. And I mean, literally you can book on a street art tour that will take you around the area and will point out the different, um, the different artists and the different um, pieces that have gone up by, by international names. Um, street art is something that anyone can get into and they don't have to ever break the law. I know several street artists that have never painted illegally, but they paint outside and they use spray paint and that's great. Um, and I think, I mean, our, our company was, was kind of born when the term street art wasn't really being used um, and perhaps we 'd rename to something street art related um, if we hadn 't sort of built up such a pedigree behind the name Graffiti Life, which is the name of the company which i haven 't mentioned up until now but um but yeah so we've we 've actually got the word graffiti in our in our company name um, but i mean i'm i 'm fine with that and because I think that it speaks to where a lot of our artists came from and some some of our freelance artists that are still sort of involved quite heavily in that scene um so yeah, I think it is changing and I think it's changed because the public perception has changed. Mm-hmm. I think that people no longer see it as an eyesore um, or as vandalism or destruction. I think that people can relate to what they see um, and they, they, they realize that a lot of these people that are doing this are actually amazing artists.
2: Um, what is the most high stakes or high pressure situation in which you've been painting something where you had to run? <laughs>
1: Um, oh God, there's I li- literally, I've got hundreds of stories of, of just the stupid stuff that I did when I was younger. Um, so I've been, I mean, so the, the very, very first time that I painted illegally was, um, right outside. There's a, a town in the UK called Brighton and it's a seaside town. It's uh, on the coast. And people go down there on a sunny day they'll go down there and hang out on the beach. There's no sand on the beach. it's all pebbles um and it's 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 such an arty town it's a cra- it's i i'd um I'd liken it a lot to um to San francisco actually it's very 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 similar in that kind of vibe of its creative um people from like you'd know someone from Brighton you'd just be like, "Oh, you're from Brighton, aren't you because they're just kind of they're creative and they're open minded and um, they're inclusive of everyone and just like, I don't know, it's, it's a really cool place. Um, so me and my, me and my friend, Paul, who taught me how to paint, um, we realized that we could, we could get on the train from where we lived, um, which is in Croydon and we could get the train to, um, to Brighton and we could get through cause there was no barriers back in those days in the early two thousands. There, there's so many barriers there now that you, you couldn't get through without a ticket, well, we realized that we could bunk the train every day. So we started spending a lot of time in Brighton. And as the train goes into Brighton station, it's flanked on both sides by two, um, sort of massive cliff, cliff tops. Um, and so we found a way through jumping through people's back gardens, we could get down the, um, down the side of the mountain. Cause there was this, uh, I said, well, mountain, it's like a cliff, um, we could get down the side because there's this um, this small sort of staircase that's um, that's built into there. I think it's where track workers go down to get to get onto the lines to a certain spot. So uh, there were four of us. We were with um, we were with two much more experienced artists than us at the time, and so they said, "I'll oh, come to this spot." So so they took us. We started jumping over people's um, back garden fences, and someone must have seen us jumping the fences, but we didn't realize. So we made it down um, down to the bottom of the cliff. And this is broad daylight. I, I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. And so we started painting, um, trackside, um, on, it was on the side of an old, uh, of an old kind of train shed. Um, that actually we went in, into the train shed before, um, before we started painting on the outside of it. And there were all these kind of dead out of, out of commission trains in there. It was incredible. And so we took a couple of photos in there and then we went out and we started painting on the side of this train shed and then all of a sudden we looked up and we saw an army of of um police and dogs um running down the running down these steps kind of snaking their way down towards us. And so I I mean we didn't know what to do so um we bo- we both looked to the to the older artists and they said well the, the literally we can't go back up that way so the only thing we can do is Um, go across the rails and there's five tracks that lead into Brighton station. The only thing we can do is jump across those, get to the other side, jump that fence and then run out onto the main road and then off. So we started running, um, leaping over the third rail because that's the, that's where the electric current runs through. Um, And if you land on that, you're toast, you're done for. So we were jumping over those, but this was broad daylight. So the trains were in use and Brighton is a busy station. So there were trains pulling in, sounding their horns very loudly at us because we were these nuisance teenagers jumping over their tracks. Um, feeling the speed of the trains as they as they kind of zip past you and feeling like feeling your clothes kind of being sucked towards them, which was terrifying. Um, and then I remember one of the guys we were with just started laughing. And that... Hysteria spread through all of us, so we're all completely laughing, running up getting chased by the police, jumping over these um over five um lines and then vaulting over this fence on the other side and and ran and we got away um and it was absolutely absolutely insane, and then you have to go through i mean then it was film cameras, so we uh we then took all of the all of our films out of our cameras. Um, I hid them in a bush and went back for them later in case we'd been picked up by the police. Cause then they could prove it was us because we'd have photos on <laughs> our cameras. Um, and, um, all sort of like if we had a jacket turning it inside out, so it was a different color and changing our appearance. And then we all sort of split up and, and disappeared and, uh, and lived to paint another day. But, um, I think after that moment, I definitely got a lot more sensible. Um, and I, and we then started, um, treating things as a lot more of a sort of military operation, uh-huh. So then the chases were were much less because we were we were so much more planned about it um, and we spent a lot more time um so when we were painting trains most artists will sort of turn up at, at like 4 a.m. um just after the cleaners have have cleared out of the train and then they'll go in we would turn up at 1 and we'd watch the cleaners work their way from one end of the train to the other um but by doing that we were we were watching the trains, knowing that um because sometimes the British transport police would go into the trains and hide and um, so if we were there at one, we'd catch the British transport police going in and hiding in the trains so because we got there early, so it was just little things like that planning that we kind of um safeguarded our experiences and uh there were very very few but i mean uh, but then still lots of dangerous things so Um, the sides of the motorways in the UK, um, specifically leading to, um, towards Gatwick airport was one of our favorites. And, uh, I always remember my mum. um, my mum and dad were, were, um, driving to Gatwick airport. I think they were picking someone up from the airport. And my mum said, um, I saw your and Paul's work on the side of Gatwick, (laughs) on the side of the motorway (laughs) towards Gatwick airport. And she really didn't appreciate it because although she was super supportive of me painting, She really didn't want to see kind of it right on her doorstep, essentially. Uh Um, So I got, yeah, I did get a bit of a scolding for that one.
2: So I think that, that actually uh, makes a perfect segue uh, to talk. I think this is what I want to spend the last bit of our time about uh, talking about it is the actual process for how your work comes together. I mean, minus the the master planning of, of these military like heists in which you get to go and do illegal painting. Now, how, what is the process for one of these pieces of work to come to life? Like, what do you do day to day habits wise? And do you guys have, you know, uh, a plan before you go out there? Do you sketch it on paper? Uh and you know, how do you translate something, you know, especially to a canvas that is that big?
1: Yeah. So, um, so I think I mean it's 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 obviously fun talking about um my my past and and all of the kind of silly things that I did. I'm actually I'm so much more proud of um my career for the well, it's for the last nine years, because we started the company in 2010. Um and I think I think graffiti life is, it's taken on its own, its own identity. Um, the reason that we started the company was at the, in 2010, I'd seen a lot of, of artists get sent to jail and I knew that was a path that I really didn't want to go down. Um, and so there were no platforms for us as artists. Um, so we just decided to build our own. I mean, we we would go around to galleries and it quickly became clear that that no one was interested and in, unless you were called Banksy you were, you weren't getting a painting in a gallery um and so i was like i knew all of these incredible artists and i knew that they were painting on the weekends and then working crap jobs that they hated through the week and so i just i just wanted to create something where they could make money doing art um and that that was kind of how graffiti life um came about um and so- essentially yeah it comes back to to sort of helping people um and so we started off just three of us and it took a it took a long time to to get there um but i mean now we have there's fifteen uh, members of staff that work for us now um which obviously as a as kind of one of the bosses is a huge kind of burden in the sense of like I have to make sure their wages are paid every month and there's all of that kind of pressure. And my job has become so different. Um, I mean, I, I often say I spend 90% of my time talking about painting and, and <laughs> the other 10% actually painting, but, um, but yeah, I mean, um, so in terms of our, of our process, since having the company, we, you, we don't have the, the kind of, um, we don't have the pressure of knowing we're going to have to run at any minute. So, that allows us to like kind of properly um get invested in the artwork and i think that the the actual art that we're producing is is just incredible because we're we're able to dedicate time to it and we're able to dedicate resources to it um and and just embracing new technology so i mean we've we've just had a, a mural go up that um we've incorporated ar technology into it so we've painted this um this amazing skyline of london and it's a collaboration with a, with a rapper over here in the UK called Giggs and um, Giggs then like kind of walks through the skyline of, of London. He's a giant and it's, it's incredible. So utilizing those new technologies, but the, in terms of process, like how we create the artwork um, literally we will, we'll design our stuff using sort of um, illustrator, Photoshop. Um, we will, what we do a lot of the times is we'll put a grid over the artwork. So I've got an A4 sheet of paper in front of me. I know that one inch on our, on that sheet of paper equals one meter on the wall. Mm. Um, and so from there I can map, I can map the the piece exactly. Um, so we'll draw a grid onto the wall. Um, and then just, and then like you, like you did in school when you'd, you'd kind of grid up a piece and then, and then copy it over to, to the second grid. Um, we do that, but we just do it on a, on a large scale. Um, and i think spray paint is such a beautiful medium and it's so fast so we can um we can paint these incredible murals and we can do it in a day or two days because the nature of spray paint as a medium it covers fast every color um will cover over another color so there's no kind of problems it's touch dry in 30 seconds so i mean i tried um oil paintings when i was kind of experimenting uh, as an as a younger artist and it just frustrated me; it, ne- it never dried. Whereas spray paint is just instant. You can just do so much with it. So, um, essentially, it's. I mean, we've we've honed it now to to just sort of a really precise. Like, as soon as we get kind of a, a commission come in, um, we'll work out the design. We'll maybe work with the client on the design, or we'll design something ourselves, um, and then we'll we'll grid it up, and then and then that goes to. Uh, a color picker. And then the color picker will have to choose, um, all of the cans of paint that we're going to need for that job. Um, and then, and then we pack it into suitcases, literally into suitcases. Um, and then we, and then we take it out and we go and hit the walls. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it in terms of, um, process. I mean, there's, there's different things like there's certain nozzles that you can put on top of different spray cans that will, that will make the paint react in a different way. So it'll, it'll come out, uh, as a skinnier line or a fatter line, depending on, on your, um, desire, but, um, essentially we're using the same cans that, that the guys in the 1980s were using it's, spray paint's not really changed that much over the years. Um, other than the pressure in it being a little bit lower, so it's a little bit easier to control. But, um, yeah, I think that's, yeah, I hope that answers your question. I was
2: hearing you say that. I thought it was all, if I ever, if I ever plan another conference, uh, you'll be getting a call cause I'll probably just have you do a, an art installation.
1: amazing so yeah i've I've done a couple of conferences so i'm just getting into speaking it's a it's a scary uh i mean i like with everything when i first started graffiti i absolutely sucked um and i i'm getting better as a speaker and i know um i know that it's just going to take time and practice so i'm i'm sort of fully um committed to that um so i've i've been appearing at, at conferences as a speaker which has been great um but another thing that we that we do is um like graffiti team building, uh-huh. so what I like to do is get a load of delegates that have never painted before, and again, it's the teacher and me comes out. Um, but I, it's one of for me, it's the, like one of the most fun things that we do is actually teaching people who've never touched a spray can yeah. and taking them and and showing them how to. Normally, we do it for just for just ninety minutes, and in ninety minutes, we can literally take you from. I've never drawn a stick man in my life to actually producing something that looks really cool. And everyone's like posing by it, by the end of it. And they're super proud of what they've done. I love that. I love seeing people like, and, and it's the scale again, like being able to create something huge and then all pose in front of it. Yeah. Um, in such a short space of time. I love that. So we, we do that at quite a few conferences as well, which is cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's fun.
2: Well, it's funny because I'm always blown away when I see the the guys, you know, on the streets of places like San Francisco or big cities where they're wearing those masks and listening to techno music, and you're seeing them, and then suddenly this thing in like 20 minutes just turns into something breathtaking.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I don't get the techno music. Um, Yeah, yeah, those guys (laughs) are weird. But um, but but yeah, it is mad how how fast it comes together, and and I guess um, that's that's it's so funny when I'm painting with um, like street artists who've never painted illegally. They're so much slower because mm. they've got the kind of luxury of time whereas we've learned to use like if you have painted <laughs> illegally, you've kind of got it in you of like when you 're filling an air and an area you fill it in so much faster it's just uh, it's, I guess it's muscle memory <laughs> amazing wow
2: well, well, this has been really, really cool. I am very, very happy that you emailed me because uh, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. this has been eye opening thought provoking uh, Like I said, literally like now I want to go, I I thought about going to a graffiti school in San Diego a while back. And now I want to go try to find those guys and add this to the list of things I plan to do within the next two weeks. Uh, So I want to listen to some uh, techno music. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I want to finish with my final question, which I know uh, you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. So I knew you were going to ask that question. So I've been thinking about it for ages. Um, And so the other day I was on the tube. And, um, I looked around and everyone was kind of dressed the same. Everyone was staring into their phones and I kind of tried to get a look over the screens and a lot of them were playing Candy Crush. And I think that we are, we're all being asked to, to be part of the system and it's encouraged to fit in. And if you, if you rebel, no one will like you, um, And because that's what the powers that be want, because that makes everything easier and we're easier to control. Um, I think that the unmistakable ones are the rebels. They're the ones who, who create change. Um, They, they, they create a body of work that speaks for them. Um, And they're just, they're brave and they're taking risks and, pushing up against that system, questioning everything. Um, and I think that's, that's creativity. You don't, I'm not saying that you have to, to be unmistakable, you have to go and break the law. Um, I think you just have to, you have to question the norm and, and, and embrace your creativity because every single person is, is creative. And I know you obviously really, really that, like, that's what you're all about, which is what I love. Um, And I just think that too many people confuse artistic with creative and they're, they're very different. Like, like not, not everyone is artistic, but like every single person can be creative. And if you can be creative, then you can be unmistakable.
2: Wow. Uh, Well, I think that makes a really fitting and uh, poetic end to an amazing conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, everything that you're up to?
1: So our latest, um, passion project is our podcast. Um, it's called creative rebels, obviously. Um, and it's a show for, um, basically we interview people that have, uh, rebelled against the nine to five, um, people who are doing fun stuff, um, for their job, because the fact that we paint on walls for a living is a ridiculous career. We are well aware of that. Um, but I just think that more people can do that if they have the the courage and the confidence, so it's our goal with that show to just, um, inspire people to take the leap. And if there's something that they love, um, or even just something that they're interested in that they think later down the line, they could love, um, that can be something that you could be doing for your job, um, which is the amazing time that we live in. Um, so yeah, our podcast is called creative rebels, um, search that on any major podcast platform and you'll find us, um, we were number one on the iTunes business chart when we debuted, which was amazing. And then we got featured on Apple's and Noteworthy, which was also amazing. So, um, so the show has been like really successful, which is ace, um, couldn't have wished for more. And we've had some great guests on there, which is awesome. Um, and then you can find me at David speed UK, um, pretty much on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And my company is called graffiti life, which is at graffiti underscore life, L I F E. And that's on Instagram and Twitter